Welcome to Nerd Night Colorado Springs, everybody. Let's see here. Boom. Nerd Night. We don't have any music with this, but it looks cool, right? <laughs> All right. So Nerd Night has a bit of a identity crisis with the technology and everything that's going on. So the original Nerd Night tagline is be there and be square, but that's kind of boring. So in the last decade, because Nerd Night is not a new thing, it's been around for a while, they would call it, it's like the Discovery Channel with beer, but nobody has cable anymore, so who has the Discovery Channel? So now we've dubbed it like boozy TED Talks. So hopefully everybody has a nice beer, everybody has some food, and uh, let's get nerdy over here. So I am one of the Nerd Night bosses, my name literally is Flip Awesome Aguilera, and this young lady right here is my wife and this here is a picture of us at nerd night in Miami where I asked her to marry me yeah so that's fun um, I don't know why <laughs> so we just learned the other day because last time last month we said that nerd night in, is in over 80 cities around the world and we just learned that nerd night is almost at about a hundred cities now so it's continuing to grow and of course one of the newest cities is here in colorado springs and that's awesome so i know let's see who is here for the first time show of hands i know what you new people are thinking you 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 all you new people are thinking what would I talk about if I wanted to stand in front of a whole bunch of drunk nerds? Like, what is it that I would talk about? So, if you are interested in being a Nerd Night presenter, you can email us at nerdnight at gmail.com or find us on the, on the gram, on the Facebook, on all the places. You can either just tap me in the shoulder or tap her in the shoulder as well. That works too. So, like I said, we're talking about social media. You can follow, like, review, and share us. We are on the Book of Faces we are on the gram at Nerd Night at COS and Nerd Night COS on Facebook. So please look us up. And if you take any pictures tonight, post it, put it up. Let the people know how fun this event is. You can also stalk us on our website, which um, I think we made once and have never looked at it again. But if you see here, this is the video of me uh, asking her to marry me at my Nerd Night talk in Miami. So if you want to check that out, check it out. Uh, and let's put our hands together for Kawadi for giving us this beautiful space. Thank you, Kawadi. We think you guys are awesome. And thank you to you. So give yourselves a hand, Colorado Springs. And now, tonight, our presentations are, presentation number one is why you want to buy an electric car by Dan Price. Presentation number two is the celebration of Colorado Springs 150 years by Mike Pock. And presentation number three is radiation therapy. A day without radiation is a day without sunshine by Madeira Cathpal. So with that, I think all that's left to do is start learning and being nerdy. And Mandy Penn photography is in the back with the uh, photo booth so please take pictures if you came alone find another nerd and take pictures with them and have a good time with all that fun stuff so I believe it's time for me to call Dan Price up to let us know why we may want to buy electric cars let's give him a hand and down. 
this is the laser uh, Okay. So I'm mechanical engineer and I worked in oil and gas power mining so I've worked in the alternative for too many years the so the fun question first how do you know your Nate like nerds I'm not used to speaking to this so excuse me so eyes get dreamy when presenting logical arguments and figures date night involves TED Talks and says please talk nerdy to me. Well that one is a little loaded because if you're a, from England they say nerd like nerd and dirt like dut or dit. Um, so when you're here we roll the R's. We don't use an uh. So we say the E and the I in the same way. And a lot of times if you're from the Midwest you don't say dirty, you say dirty. So it sounds like nerdy and don't get that confused. So, um, so yeah, so this is just no wrong answers. So why do you want to buy an electric vehicle? So the first one is an electric vehicle will make me look hot. Well, that, you're not a nerd. So go get something to drink or eat. You're not in the right place. Um, I want to help save the environment. Well, that's questionable, but you may or may not be a nerd. And I do not know if I want to buy an electric vehicle, can I save money? Well, you're a nerd. That's what this is about. So, so you do not need the presentation for number one, go buy beer. Um, you're not a nerd, do not pass go. And the last one as well, the presentation is for you. Uh, consumer reports is where I'll start. And so that's an overview. The first thing to realize is that Electric vehicles are totally new and there's so much that we'll be learning, industry will be learning, people will be learning about what really is going to happen. Uh, the typical fuel savings for current electric vehicles for an average driver is about $800 to $1,000 per year. Not a big number, right? The maintenance savings, however, over the life of the vehicle that's the Consumer Reports life was $4,600. And currently we see lower depreciation, especially for Teslas, but we're actually expect lower depreciation going forward because batteries are expected to get up to a million miles and currently most cars are changed up for 200,000 miles. So your car might go until it's a rust bucket. And that is a big savings on terms of your maintenance because now instead of 4,600, you take that times five to get to a million miles and you're almost at the cost of electric vehicle. Plus, people are gonna buy it 
at 500,000 miles because they're still going to run at 500,000 miles. And there's a lot less maintenance and things to break. So the cost for the vehicles is tracking downwards. And some people write that in 2025, the costs for an electric vehicle will equal a new gas-powered vehicle. Well, that's two things happening. One is they're going to be producing fewer gas-powered vehicles, so the cost is going to go up, and electric cars are going to go down. So it doesn't mean that you're going to be that much cheaper at that time, but soon after that, they will actually be lower than buying a gas-powered vehicle, and it will become very compelling. Currently, you get federal tax savings, and larger vehicles will save more money. This, these numbers are for an average small 190-inch wheelbase commuter vehicle. Uh, your SUVs or vans will save more money than what's stated here. 92%, uh, and this is one of the problems with evaluating it, people say, oh, I'm afraid I cannot drive without a charge. Well, 92% of all trips people make in the United States can be accommodated with a 250-mile range. And then above that, everyone knows, all the car developers, charging developers, everyone knows, battery developers, that we want fast charge. This next year, you're going to be able to buy a Kia that has full charge in about eight minutes. And so what we're going to see is all the other manufacturers are going to do the same thing with slightly different technology. Because you can have one with a 20-minute charge and another one with an eight-minute charge, who's going to buy the 20-minute charge? So everything will go to the point where your time to charge is about the same as filling it with gasoline. And you'll see all this negative puff pieces for the existing industry saying, oh, you'd have to rebuild the electrical system. You'd end up with more power going to those cars than all the power we would produce in the United States. Well, that's all just bullshit. And a lot of it is that we haven't seen all the technology that will be applied to chargers. So one of the things we can do is store power at the charger. So instead of having this equivalent of a multi-megawatt charger that has to draw that much power from the grid, it can ship the power in between charges. So, and you can store it either through um, centrifuge or high energy capacitors. Um, and the capacitors are too big to put on a car, but they're not too big to put on a, a concrete pad. And so you can bring the power in between charges and then dump the power very quickly. Also, some people will say, oh, I'm going to go eat my burger. I don't care if it's a 20-minute charge. Just plug it in. I'll pay less money to take more time. And they will. And... And so you end up with a variety of charging needs, 
In fact, it will be free for some people just as a loss leader because electricity can be quite low. The electricity charge can be quite low. And that because of that, it might be better for them just to give you the electricity so you spend more money in their restaurant or whatever. Uh, so th this is all changing, but the, there's a lot of people that, in other words, an old saying that says, figures don't lie, but liars figure. And there's a lot of liars out there figuring how to tell you that electric vehicles are not the way we're going to go. So, so what is the holdup? So people want to see lower cost vehicles is the result of most of the marketing research. And the sweet spot is when electric vehicles are lower cost than gasoline vehicles. And as I mentioned earlier, gas vehicles will go up in price because of reduced production and electric vehicles will go down in price. So cost parity is expected in 2025. Well, that's not very much time from now. Especially for a vehicle that's expected to last 10 years, 12 years. Uh, people want to see more charging options. And so this charging options can get rid of your, or ameliorate greatly the range anxiety. So they, there's all kinds of puff pieces saying, oh, this is going to take forever and it takes months and years to do and and it's very, very, very expensive and they their numbers are usually all wrong. And But if you take a current like gas station, there's one built on Tijon and uh, I-25, no electric charging on a gas station with four or five new pumps and underground tanks. That's a two or three million dollar facility there. And to put in chargers is nowhere near that cost. Now with a gas station, you have to have it manned so that someone can shut off the gas if there's a fire or call the fire department. Um, it's possible to do some automation and eliminate that, but so far we've not done that. We've not spent the money to figure out how to do that. Uh, whereas with charging stations, there are no people there. So let's say you own a charging, charging station. You get a credit card from the guy, puts it in, gets a charge, and then they drive away. A month later, you pay the bill with a gasoline uh, system, you have to stock the gasoline. You've got to buy 10,000 gallons of it and dump it in the tank, right? And you pay that bill before you sell the gasoline. So the business model for chargers is actually much, much better than for gasoline. And you don't... So the, the main way most people will charge is either at work or at home and it'll be a slow charge and most of the time they'll add 40 to 60 miles per day and there are various ways to do it which I'll talk about um, unless you live in your house charging at home can be inconvenient currently there's some movement towards saying well we're gonna have to have chargers at apartment buildings 
chargers at work and some places that are more progressive they do have chargers at work they have chargers in the parking lots and parking garages and those are not real expensive to install um, so this like I say is a red herring really <laughs> because it's meant to distract you from the fact that this really isn't very difficult so no need to have personal on site the cost less than the gas pump systems and no stock to buy and electricity and parking places are everywhere they say well you know there's no infrastructure well tell me where the parking places are you can put a charger at any parking spot you can put an electricity you go to the gas station they've got 480 three-phase power running to it every grocery store has 483 days power running in the alley behind it so all the the parking uh, lots have very close three-phase power to feed power out into the parking lot if they choose choose um, so what is the lowest cost way to charge an electric vehicle and this is it you use the solar power to charge the vehicle that's parked underneath of it and this is not highly recognized as the way to go but here would be what it look like at home you just put a little canopy over the top you get shade for your car and you get electricity at the same time or here this would be an office park and people parked underneath there and and if there's one or two cars not parked there, well, that means all the other cars, they get a little more charge. Um, so to me, that looks like an oil well. well. Which would you rather have in your backyard? I think I'd rather have the solar uh, setup. And you don't, it's like, in an economic sense, it's just like having your own oil well but at a much lower cost because to do gasoline you not only need the oil well but you need a refinery you need pipelines you need the fueling station there's a lot of cost involved and the power companies don't want you to think of charging electric vehicles with solar because you cut them out too and solar panels are going down in price all the time and there are some institutional resistance to us buying the cheapest panels and it's a union resistance that we want to build them here in the United States with union labor and we don't want it to be done overseas. But a pure economics viewpoint would say what's more important to our prosperity in a capital intensive environment is the low cost of the panels. So we don't care where they're made. We want the lowest cost panels and we want to put it in and just use it for 25 or 30 years or longer and change it out when the panels are no longer effective. So the solar charging, because you've got a big battery there, you are you would be charging it at the time the sun is shining. So say you drove to work and it happened to be a, a very, very dark day, you know, hurricane, Houston, and there's no sun. Well, 
you're not going to charge that day. Tomorrow, the next day, sun comes out, you're, you're charging. Um, what the solar charging does, cuts out the middleman. Cuts out the oil man, cuts out the, the uh, power company. It also protects the car, so you get double usage. And that's really where solar is going to go in a short time, is we're going to be seeing solar power incorporated into the building materials used to build buildings. So we have roofing material, we have other things, and it's going to be just two uses for one piece of material. And solar costs are dropping, and currently they're very, very effective in price between one and two cents per kilowatt hour, which most of you probably don't know what that means. But that's with silicon. And now we're seeing this, I'm not pronouncing it right, pedrosoclite. There's other uh, chemistries that are promising to have much lower costs, too, than the current. Uh, so here's another way to do car charging. And it's being done in LA. So they put a charger right on the light pole. And at the same time, they change the light from a incandescent or halide to LEDs. And the way this works on the electrical distribution is the power is coming in under the street. But because you go to LEDs in the light head, you don't have to increase the power to the light pole. So you just put, it's a two-step um, installation. And then these are slow chargers, what they're doing. You can make them faster by putting in a energy storage device there. But currently these are done with, as a slow charger, you could add solar to it. I even saw one where they take the solar panel and they make it circular and wrap it around the light pole. So we're going to be seeing that as well. Um, or the light pole itself is now the solar panel um, in some cases. So the light pole chargers, when combined with LED street lights, no wiring upgrade, which is a big cost savings. And the light poles are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And then you'll see people write, I've seen people write, say, we can't put solar chargers on every light pole. Well, we don't need to. You know, that's a red herring about how difficult this is. These chargers are actually made in a factory, so the costs are very, very low. Their costs in high production or in high production manufacturing are close to the cost of materials. So, and they are a heavy users, the chargers are heavy users of the um, rare earth metals. So that's a problem we still need to work on. But that's what keeps engineers employed, nerds, actually. So the typical cost is dollar to $2 per hour of charging is what they're currently charging at these light poles. And as the costs are recovered, it's possible they could go down if the city's owning them. If it's a private, you're going to pay $2 or $3 an hour forever. Um, so these can be installed in parking lots or on the street side. Uh, so 
so what's next is how to evaluate electric cars, yeah. is, and that's a very, very complicated subject, and who will benefit most from electric cars are topics I can take on. Uh, I can also talk about solar power and why it's going to be and is being put in and what's actually stopping us from having much more solar in our economy. And mostly it's because the electric companies don't want to lower their cost of power to us because they get 8% off the top. So we have a structural legal problem we have to deal with. It affects electric cars as well as just regular solar power. So any questions, anyone? Yes. Okay. Well, probably the lowest cost we've seen so far is these light pole chargers. You see chargers on the street, like in Paris and uh, other places where they are going to eliminate gas cars fairly soon for ambiance reasons. Um, but those are being put in through underground utilities and in Europe they do the street construction differently. They actually can pull up the bricks and put in sand. They have sand and then they have bricks, very large, maybe this long, this wide, that they pull up and these are a combination of concrete and another material, I'm not sure what. Um, and then they can pull up the street and put the power in and then put the street back together in one day. And that's how it works in London and in Paris. Or Paris. Um, in France they call it Paris, not Paris. Um, so uh, here, this light pole charger has fallen into being a very cost-effective way to do it. Uh, you can, in a regular parking lot, saw up the uh, asphalt cheaply, fairly quickly, especially if you're resurfacing the parking lot. And those costs can be fairly low. Inside of a parking garage, you can run conduit over the, kind of like a wall charge plug-in, you know, half inch, three quarter inch conduit, just run it over the top of the uh, concrete that's there. But, so it depends on your situation and, you know, uh, what your maintenance cycles are and other things at the point. But we'll probably see a lot more light pole chargers before we see anything else. Yes. Uh, are there any companies making generators that are trailers that you can keep driving in the car with uh, Well, I've seen one where they have a trailer on the back that incorporates a camper, and it's got a big battery on the bottom. So you got camper battery, and you've got range extender. Um, I've not seen, you know. Auxiliary electric engine, although hybrid cars are that, right? So, yes. Does the degradation rate of the 
Um, she's asking about what's a degradation rate of batteries, and that's as varied as the battery chemistries that are out there. What I can speak to, though, is what do we want to buy? And what people want, and this is connected, is that people want safe batteries, and people want um, batteries that are trouble-free. So to get safe and trouble-free batteries, you typically want to stop the dendrite formation. If you are, you have to, if you're dealing with lithium-ion metal batteries or lithium-ion batteries. If you're dealing with sodium batteries, the dendrites aren't a problem. But so if it's a lithium battery, it's the dendrite um, uh, stopping the dendrites. And what dendrites are on a fundamental basis is lithium has four bonding sites around it. And so a dendrite forms by one lithium bonding to another. And then the next time it bonds to another site. Well, it's going a direction in the battery, that the second site, where you really don't want it to go. And it will, under certain chemistries, will preferentially go a direction you absolutely do not want to go, and it'll short out. So there are various strategies for getting this lithium to bond in the right direction and form the chain that you want it to chain to form, and that's generally classified as stopping dendrites. Um, so it's a fundamental problem chemistry that is being worked different ways. And that's why people talk about solid state batteries is you don't get the dendrite formation from a solid state battery. Um, and still use lithium and lithium metals. There's graphene uh, cathodes that do a similar thing and provide other properties, but it is not clear what the battery is going to be. You know, there's so many, probably for automobiles, at least a hundred different approaches to what's going to happen and, and people are going to compete in the marketplace and production, all kinds of things. It's very, very, very complicated technology. Um, so more and more people are thinking, and this is rational, that we're going to use something other than lithium. We're going to use sodium or iron phosphate or there's lithium iron phosphate, which also is a less propensity for dendrites. Um, so it, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> That's really the best anyone can say is these are very smart people all you know, with PhDs and and they are working very hard on this question. Anyone else? Okay. What? Thank you, Dan Price. Everyone, give it up for Dan, please. I feel a little bit more educated as to why Flip might want to convince me to buy a Tesla. <laughs> He's been working on it for a while now. Uh, so if you got, if anyone has any more uh, questions or wants to get a hold of Dan, his email is right over here, dtprice21 at gmail.com. And now for nerd trivia. So this, uh, this month I don't have a, a specific theme. However, I decided to 
give you guys a little few questions on the different topics that the speakers are going to be talking about today. So our first question has to do with electric cars. Let me move over here. So what percentage of the energy in an electric vehicle battery is transferred directly to powering the car? Does anyone have any guess? <laughs> kind of close. Lower. Who said 80? Boom! We've got nerd rope for the lady over here. 80%. This is correct. Now, in a gasoline-powered vehicle, only 15% of the energy goes directly toward powering the car. Big difference, isn't that? Yeah, I know. So next question. Where was Nikola Tesla's experimental lab believed to be located by? Yes, Memorial Park. Nerd rope for the lady. Now, although its exact location is disputed, the alleged location of the lab was between the Colorado School for the Deaf and blinds and the Union Printers home in what is now Memorial Park. So I wanted to put that little caption in there as well. And the last question for this round is, due to the radiation from the sun, the US flag planted by the Apollo astronauts is likely to be what color today? Hands, anyone? White. This is correct. Nerd rope for the senor over there. Oop. All right. Thank you so much for playing. We have about 10 minutes before we have our next presenter, which is going to be Mr. Mike Pack, celebrating 150 years of Colorado Springs then and now. In the meantime, get some drinks, get some food, follow, like, review, hashtag Colorado, uh, hashtag Nerd Night COS. Awesome, see you guys soon. It's time, let's bring it back. Let's lower this down. <laughs> All right, let's see here. Boom, we're back on this screen again. I see people are using the Mandy Pen photo booth. If you, if you don't mind, please put those pictures on the Nerd Night Facebook group and Instagram so people know that we're having lots of fun and we're super cool. Uh-huh. All right. And next, I'm going to call Mike Pack up to the stage and we're going to learn about Colorado Springs 150 years ago. He's, it's like magic. Boom, I call and there he is. 150 years then and now. So down is what makes it go forward. And if you need the uh, little laser, there it is. All right, here you go. Project. Project. All right. Can everybody hear me? Mandy, can you hear me? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. All right, awesome, cool. I was, uh, I was earlier accused of being married to Mandy because the two of us are photographers that, you know, I guess that means that we should be together. Right? <laughs> but no, please go see Mandy, have your picture taken, share it with the Nerd Night folks. So, hi nerds, how's it going? 
All right. So my name is Mike Pock, and I did a project for our sesquicentennial to portray life then and now. So how many people here know that this year is our 150th anniversary? All right. Everybody should be raising your hand because now you know that Colorado Springs was founded in 1871, 150 years ago. So you may have seen this meme on Facebook, the hardest things to say. I was wrong. I need help. Worcestershire sauce has been replaced by sesquicentennial. So say sesquicentennial five times fast. <laughs> <laughs> I think she deserves one of those uh, things you give away for the. So I've had a lot of practice saying and spelling sesquicentennial for the past two years. Okay, so a little bit of background on my project. I was given this idea through a casual conversation with our director of the Pioneers Museum five years ago. He said, you know, Mike, I'd like to do a then and now project. And that idea never left my head. Every time I saw him after that, I would remind him of that conversation. And I think he finally got sick of hearing it from me. And then um, I learned that we were going to be celebrating the sesquicentennial. So I said, Matt, this is the perfect opportunity for us to do this kind of project. So I volunteered to search through archives in the Pioneers Museum and the Library District. And um, I started working officially in 2019 when the project was announced at the mayor's press conference, marking two years away from our celebration. I was recognized by city council in January of 2020 for this work. I definitely had some COVID challenges, had to skip some things that I had planned. Uh, and I completed all of my photos in March of this year. I have uh, 50 pairs of photos that were in an exhibit at Library 21C, and I have 75 pairs in a book that I created, and I have copies in the back if anybody wants to check that out. I'm also selling copies tonight. Uh, one of my major goals was to showcase the diversity that we have here in Colorado Springs. And the whole project really changed my perspective on photography. Now, when I take a photograph, I realize that I am recording history. And if you go see Mandy and get your picture taken, you will be recording the history of what happened tonight. So make sure it's a good one. Uh, so here's uh, what my book looks like. And like I said, I've got some copies in the back. I've got some samples that you can flip through. Happy to show you those and answer any questions after my presentation and during the break. I'm going to share some of my favorite photos with you. Okay, who knows who the founder of Colorado Springs is? I've given you the answer. General William Jackson Palmer. He was a Civil War general. He came here in 1871 to build what? What did he come here to build? Who knows? To say it. He came here to build a railroad. He came here to build a railroad from Denver all the way to uh, Mexico. And it ended up getting down to Pueblo. So General Palmer's mark is seen everywhere in the city. 
including the statue that everybody likes to curse because it's right in the middle of the intersection of Platte and Nevada. So uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to take this photo because there is no left turn lane here. It's just blank because you have to go around the statue to turn. So I was safe taking that photo. Okay, I um, made a point to acknowledge the people who came before us. I think it's important to note that we are on native lands, and uh, this photo came from a collection from what was known as Zoo Park. It was a zoo that was in the Broadmoor area, just south of where A Street ends. And I was fortunate enough to meet with some Native American folks and get this photograph in almost the same location. And these people represent a wide variety of tribes and they have a wide variety of occupations. And uh, back when this picture was taken in 1906, Native Americans were not considered US citizens. They were not allowed to vote. They were supposed to stay on the reservation. So these people were part of a Wild West exhibit that was at Zoo Park. Oops, wrong way. All right. Um, also was fortunate enough to meet members of the Stroud family. They have a very fascinating history here. Uh, one of the family members, K.D. Stroud, was an athlete at Colorado College, was asked to go to the Olympic trials one year in Boston. Because he was black, he was not uh, paid by the Olympic Committee to go to Boston. He hitchhiked there, got there on the day of the race, was so exhausted he couldn't finish, and then he didn't have enough money to come back home. So he stayed in Boston to earn enough money to come back to Colorado Springs. And some of his family members are currently working on an opera called Race that tells his story and it's quite fascinating. Uh, the family is now spread across the United States. One of the members actually worked on the Apollo 11 mission. You can nerd out on that too. And these are current members that live in Colorado. Uh, anybody know about the Conejos neighborhood? Okay, the Conejos neighborhood is where America the Beautiful Park is now. And uh, this church was the only building that was not torn down uh, when the rest of the neighborhood was demolished to make the park. And again, I was fortunate enough to meet some uh, people who lived in the neighborhood and we got together to get the photo in front of the church. Okay, this uh, represents my favorite photo shoot. Who likes fire trucks? Okay. When I took my picture, not only did I get to play with fire trucks, but I got to block traffic. How cool is that, right? So, uh, the original photo was taken in 1926. This is station number one on Weber and Colorado. It was built in 1925. The fire department moved from the city hall, which was right next to the mining exchange, which is now where the gold room is. By the way, we're getting a new cotton club upstairs from the gold room, so stay tuned for that. What I really like about this photo is that I have the same 
type of vehicles in mind, just the most modern versions. So this is the original building with the addition built onto it. Okay. This photo is very interesting to me. I actually am an engineer by trade. I have a degree in aerospace engineering. So pictures of flying machines really fascinate me. And this story is really amazing. Look at the year. This happened, oops, this happened in 1897. What year did the Wright brothers fly? 19, uh, who remembers the year? Anybody? 19, we'll say 1903, right? Okay. So this predates the Wright brothers. This guy, William Feltz, built the flying machine and a platform on Pikes Peak to launch it from. This is a wing that two guys found up on the mountain. And just think, if he was successful, we could have been known as the birthplace of flight instead of North Carolina, right? But William Feltz disappeared. According to the news article associated with this photo, they don't know if he plunged off a cliff and died or speculation had it that he just picked up and moved to Oregon. So nobody ever heard from him or saw him again. If you want to geek out on World War II flying machines, go to the World War II uh, museum out by the old airport. This happens to be my very favorite airplane. Who knows the name of this airplane? The Corsair, yes. So did you watch Baba Black Sheep as a kid? Oh, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Baba Blackcheek was the reason that I love Corsair so much. So this is a Brewster Corsair, the only flying model in existence in the entire world. And it's here in Colorado Springs. Okay, who's been to the hill climb? All right. What do you like about the hill climb? Cars go fast, right, in the history? So this is a shot from the very first race in 1916. Do you know what the oldest race is in the United States? No. Indy 500, what's the second oldest? The hill climb. Pikes Peak International Hill Climb is the second oldest motor race in the, in the world. And it happens right here every year the end of June on Pikes Peak. So I am uh, fortunate enough to photograph the race for the Pikes Peak Bulletin, the newspaper in Manitou Springs. This shot was taken in 2020 at the last curve just below the finish line. All right, who recognizes this building? Anybody? Anybody? You two can't answer. <laughs> who recognizes this building? Everybody should have their hand up. It's the building we're in right now. Okay. This was the trolley building. We had a very extensive trolley system here in Colorado Springs that ended in 1931 when buses and cars became more popular. Nobody wanted to take the trolley. So I think that currently the building is being put to good use, right? If it wasn't for them restoring the building, we wouldn't be here, right?
Okay, who knows what this building is? Don't look at the at the title. <laughs> Pioneers Museum. Pioneers Museum, yes. So, uh, the Pioneers Museum originally was our county courthouse. So, uh, this is another situation where General Palmer's influence uh, is seen. Uh, the property that the courthouse was built on was donated by General Palmer, or not, oh, sorry, it wasn't donated, it was purchased by the county in the late 1800s for the low, low sum of, anybody want to guess? How much? $200 lower. Anybody? Lower. Lower. $10. So what's known as um, the Alamo Park, the area around the Pioneers Museum was donated by, or I'm sorry, purchased by the county in the late 1800s for $10. And um, it was the county courthouse from 1903 to 1973. And then the Pioneers Museum took it over in 1979. And I just happened to get lucky this night that I was out photographing something else and the car show was going on. So I'm like, cool, I'll get a great shot of, you're in, you're in there? That's how you cruise Nevada? Is that your Trans Am? <laughs> All right. Okay. Who knew that we had a state championship tug-of-war team here in Colorado Springs? All right, I wouldn't expect anybody to know that. <laughs> this is one of the many surprises I came across when I was doing my research. So this team won the state championship way back in 1900. It's comprised of members of the police and fire departments. And so... This is one of those shots where I really, I really liked it. I really wanted to use it for the project. And I had to think very creatively to match it with something. So I started thinking about all of our sports teams here. And what I came up with was the switchbacks. Because those guys were champions. These guys are part of the city for champions. And there's a switchbacks game tonight, I'm told. So funny thing about this picture is that we asked everybody to cross their arms and look very stern uh, during the photograph to match those guys in the back row. The only guy who didn't get that memo is the trainer right in the middle, and he's smiling. And I thought that was awesome because I was waiting for someone to, to spot that and point it out to me, but nobody has. All right, who likes baseball? You like baseball? Even though you're wearing a Patriots hat, you like, you like baseball, you're a sports kind of guy, yeah? Did you know that there was a league here that represented different towns along the, the railroad route? So these guys were the Denver and Rio Grande Reds representing Colorado Springs, because that was the name of the railroad, was the Denver and Rio Grande. And who's been to an old-timey baseball game with the Vintage Baseball League? So these guys have been in existence longer than the original league. They've been around for a long time. They just had their annual game at um, Rockledge Ranch on Labor Day. And my friend Roger right here in the center 
he wrote a book about baseball and Colorado Springs. Okay, who likes tanks? You want to drive a tank, don't you? I know I'm picking on you because you look really comfortable. So I got to make sure you don't fall asleep. All right. So this tank was part of a war bond promotion after World War I to try to pay the bill for the war. So this tank was nicknamed Little Zeb. The promotion was to drive it, or the plan was to drive it to the top of Pikes Peak. They attempted this in April. How many people go to the summit of Pikes Peak in April? Okay, why not? Snow, Snow yes. So, little Zeb kept getting stuck in 10 and 20 foot snow drifts and finally broke down in a 10 foot snow drift. They tried for two days to fix him and the director of the program pulled the plug, said, we're done. So, if you wanna see some other tanks, you can go out to the 4th ID Museum just outside of Gate 1 at Fort Carson and get your tank fix. All right, who knows who the guy is on the left, on the right? <laughs> it's Mayor Southers, yes. So uh, Mayor Southers was, was a very big supporter of our sesquicentennial celebration and he was a very good sport. Uh, in posing for this picture for me. So this is Mayor George Bertsall. He was mayor from 1930-something to 44, 31 to 44, I think. Uh, he has a very interesting story. Uh, when he was 18 or 19 years old, he hopped a freight train with a friend of his from Missouri, landed in what's now Car City, ended up working at a grocery store as a clerk, then became the, one of the first paid firefighters in Okar City, then became police chief, sheriff, uh, count, city council member, and mayor. So kind of an overachiever. But uh, I think that's kind of nerdy too, you know? You, you agree, right? All right, here's the ultimate nerd. We talked about him a little bit earlier. We had a trivia question about him. So how many of you actually knew that Nikola Tesla had a lab here in Colorado Springs? Maritza did, a couple of you guys. Do you know what year he had his lab here? Is that one of the trivia questions? No? You said it, 1899. He was only here for nine or 10 months, but he did some very significant work in his lab. This photograph is actually a composite image uh, taken by a local photographer. One frame was shot with the Tesla coil operating, and then another shot was taken with Tesla just sitting there reading a book. And apparently this drove Thomas Edison nuts because he didn't know how they made this photo without Tesla getting electrocuted. So. But this photo was actually taken here in Colorado Springs. Now, as an engineering student, I saw this photo in a lot of my textbooks. At the time, I didn't have any connection to Colorado Springs. I had no idea this was taken here. But now I think it's a fascinating part of our history. So this is my tribute to Nikola Tesla. This is my friend Patrick, who may give a Tesla talk. Uh, is he scheduled? or? Uh, Still working on it. Next month? Okay, all right, so come next month to see Patrick talk about all things Tesla. 
So Patrick, I met him when he was working at the McAllister House. And if you don't know what the McAllister House is, you should go there because it's a fascinating museum and you'll learn lots of stuff. So Patrick gave me the tour of all things Tesla related here in Colorado Springs. And he actually moved here from Georgia so that he could live near Tesla's lab. So this house here on the corner of Kiowa and Foote is where the lab was located. And uh, I visited what's known as Tesla Hill by the neighbors 15 different times to photograph lightning storms. And the last three storms really paid off. So this is a composite image of 40 frames, 38 containing lightning, uh, one containing uh, Patrick, and one containing the ravens on the line. I had my camera set up and a storm had passed, and these ravens came and landed on the power line. So I thought that was a sign that I needed to take their photo. So otherwise, I may have been cursed by doing this. So I had to make sure that that happened. So um, if any of you have seen the movie The Prestige, uh, David Bowie portrays Tesla. And that experiment that he did where he put the light bulbs in the ground and lit them up, that supposedly happened in Memorial Park. Yes, it is true. Don't laugh. It's true. All right. So um, here's some more stuff that you can find out about my project uh, on my website, threepeaksphoto.com slash cos150.html. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to be continuing with the exhibit. I've run into a major issue with the photos and need to have them reprinted. So I'm looking for sponsorships right now. Anybody wants to sponsor an exhibit, come talk to me. Um, you can keep track of my book sightings and talks. Uh, also purchase a book. And then you can watch the documentary film about this project by Jamie Hastings. Uh, Jamie followed me around to a number of locations to get some footage. And then also, you can watch this music video by my friend Marcel in Australia. So right now, I'm big in Australia. And uh, people there are helping us celebrate our 150th. So uh, Maritza, uh, how are we doing on time? Questions now? OK. All right. So uh, if we had time, I, I, I would have played Marcel's video. But you can go on um, my website and check that out. It's really, really cool. The song is awesome. And you can actually download it on any of the streaming services. It's called Your Colorado Home. All right. So any questions? Any answers? Maritza. Uh, the question is, what was my favorite picture to take? And I, I would have to say the, the, uh, this one, the Tesla one. So of all of the photos that I did for the project, um, this is the only one that I'm considering a masterpiece, uh, basically because of the countless hours that I spent putting it together. Not only going to Tesla Hill 15 times and risking my life, uh, but uh, spending all the time in Photoshop getting everything put together. So. Thank you. Other questions? Okay, thank you. Come see me back there if you want to check out the book.
I, I have that problem too. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, Mike. Everyone, make sure to visit him during the break for a, oh, ha, for, uh, to see his book and ask him any other questions that you might have. And now, some more Nerd Night trivia. I'm going to stand over here. Our first question is, switching to drive an electric vehicle can reproduce, can reduce your carbon footprint by up to? 50%. More nerd roof. All right. The next question is about Colorado Springs. We have what Colorado Springs feature has debuted in the movies War Game, The Terminator, Independence Day, and Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery? I'm sorry? Yes, Cheyenne Mountain. Cheyenne Mountain Command Center, all right. Eating one of this fruit will expose you to 0.01 millirem of radiation. This gentleman over here. Yes, a banana, that is correct. <laughs> Bananas. One interesting thing I saw is the maximum permitted radiation leakage for a nuclear power plant is equivalent to 2,500 BED, banana equivalent doses, <laughs> per year, while a chest CT scan delivers 70 BED, 70,000 BED. So that was a kind of an interesting thing, right? All right. And... We have our last break of the night, another 10 minutes, refill your drinks, get some more snacks, and we will see you here. Again, like, share us on Facebook, hashtag NerdNightCOS. See you back. So, nerds, let's get back to our seats. Hopefully we have some full drinks, we've got some food. And now we are going to learn something about radiation and the sunshine. Something like that. So I would like to introduce Madeira, who has been a fantastic Nerd Night supporter. So thank you, and it's about time we got you on this stage. So everybody, let's put our hands together for Madeira. The light. All right, cool. Oh, thanks. My, my head's a little too small for this. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, thanks. <laughs> um, so yeah, hi, I'm Madeira Cathball. I'm one of the radiation oncologists. Oh, let's start the presentation. Okay. Uh, I'm one of the radiation oncologists locally. Um, so I'm just going to talk to you about uh, radiation therapy, basically a little bit of the history of it, uh, what it actually is, uh, what, it's tr what it treats, and maybe a little bit of the future that it holds. So this kind of 
parallels the history of uh, Colorado Springs, actually, because when this great city was founded, uh, there was a gentleman named Sir William Crooks that basically hooked up a voltage to two electrodes, one negatively charged called the cathode and one positively charged called the anode. And what he discovered was that once whatever was coming out of the cathode hit the anode, it casted a shadow. And then this fluorescent light surrounded that shadow. Well, what would be discovered later is that the thing coming out of the cathode were electrons. And once those electrons hit some type of media and interacted with the atoms of that media, it released energy that had the same wavelength as light. So within the like next 20, 25 years, little other discoveries were made, including Einstein figuring out that light is actually a wave and not an actual particle. And there's this gentleman named Wilhelm Rankin who decided to put an opaque object in front of that cathode, something that the waves could pass through. And what he saw was the shadow was blurry. So he took his wife's hand on December 22nd, 1895, and, sh what'd you say? Oh, of course not his own hand. No, 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 never. <laughs> and and um, basically sh showed, shined, that, uh, that cathode on it until her hand turned red and came up with the first x-ray. That's what this is. Um, and then we'll see that it didn't take very long before we started using those x-rays to treat different things, including uh, skin, like lupus, and even breast cancer, urine, uh, uterine cancer, stuff like that. We were treating cancer with x-rays before the turn of the 19th century, the 20th century, sorry. Around the same time, this gentleman named Becquerel had an accident and figured out that he left this rock of uranium on a parchment, like on a photographic paper, and came back the next day and the paper was exposed. And he was like, oh, it must be the, something that ha that's in the photographic paper or something to do with the dark environment that he left it in. Well, with the help of Pierre and Marie Curie, what was discovered was that that uranium was actually releasing energy on its own, something called radioactivity. What they also found was two new atoms, polonium and radium, and radium is still used to this day to treat bone cancer. Um, so Wilhelm Rankin, from uh, the previous slide, he won the Nobel Peace Prize in, uh, sorry, the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1901 for his discovery of the X-rays. And then Becquerel and the two Curies won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the discovery of radioactivity. So these are just two pictures of the way that we, uh, sorry, the way that we used to um, treat so 
what this is is this is actually a lead shield surrounding a cone that sorry for the description but went into the vagina and an x-ray tube was put in through that cone up against the cervix and that's how they used to treat uterine cancer now they had no idea how much dose they were giving all right just so we're clear and then this is a tube treating laryngeal cancer so voice box cancer same thing x-ray tube put in and just shot for however many minutes that they left it on for so how are photons produced so there's the way that we produce it therapeutically and then there's the way that the sun and nuclear weapons produce it so the way that we do it therapeutically is remember that electron that excited the atom and let off the fluorescent light well all light is is a certain energy photon what we treat radiate I'm sorry what we treat cancer with is a higher powered photon so if you look over here x-rays and gamma rays are over on the very far end of the energy spectrum while light is a little less but you still get ionizing radiation we'll talk about what ionizing radiation is but anything to the left of infrared is non-ionizing radiation so this is ionizing radiation right this is an electron hitting the atom causing it to excite and then as it returns back down to its ground state it releases energy okay that is how we cure cancer this is how we cause cancer part of the way part of the way anything to the left of infrared you're not going to get cancer from so cell phones microwaves wi-fi what'd you say <laughs> bananas you have to eat a be a gorilla to not and not even a gorilla would get it um, but yeah so just so you know talking on your cell phone is it's safe so what the Sun is is basically just a giant ball of hydrogen and helium right and so those hydrogen atoms fuse together make an unstable helium and in order to become stable the helium releases a neutron at the same time releases energy from its atom and that's a gamma ray how long does it take my god I'm really sorry about that how long does it take to have a photon from the Sun reach from the core to the edge of the Sun 40,000 years 40,000 years and then how long does it take for one of those light rays to come down to earth how many eight minutes. perfect eight minutes it's crazy right so how does radiation fight cancer it attacks DNA it attacks the cell at its blueprint right so the majority of the way that it does this is using the greatest particle that we have or molecule sorry the greatest molecule that we have in our body right we're about 65 to 70 percent water so radiation x-rays photons whatever you want to call it have an abundant target 
in our body. So what it does is it can break up this water molecule into reactive species. So there's reactive oxygen species, there's hydroxyl radicals. These are extremely unstable and they're really small. So they can go into any cell and they can cause multiple strains of damage to that DNA, both single strand and double strand breaks. The double strand breaks are what we're really looking for. All right? And then we play off this hypothesis that cancer cells don't have the ability to repair those breaks, while normal cells do. And then we take it one step further, and the reason why you don't get radiation, at least normally, over one day, you get it over, really, weeks, one, one time a day for multiple days, is because we're allowing the normal cells that have the ability to repair the DNA breaks to actually repair itself. We're trying to limit the amount of side effects that a patient going through radiation gets. So this is what we treat with, or one of, the, one of the machines that we treat with, something called a linear accelerator. Honestly, all this is, is a giant cathode tube. It's a voltage applied to an electron beam that's accelerated, bent, because it's a charged particle, so you can manipulate a charged particle with a magnet, hits a tungsten target or some high Z target, interacts with those atoms, excites them, and then when they come back to normal, it releases the photons, and then we can aim the photons in any shape that we want towards the patient. So in the olden days, so this is the head of the linear accelerator, that's this part. In the olden days, we would have to treat a lot of tissue, right? X-rays enter and exit, so everything in its pathway is getting dose. So before, we had the ability to basically shape the beam, we would have huge beams just coming in. Now we can spare large areas. So for, this is a treating pelvic lymph nodes. We can spare all the bowel, right? So we're trying to prevent diarrhea, we're trying to prevent nausea, we're trying to prevent a future of adhesions. This is breast cancer treating the lymph nodes as well as the chest wall. This is someone that's had their breasts removed with a mastectomy. We're able to spare the heart and a grave majority of the lung to prevent them from having side effects. So when is radiation therapy used? The majority of what we do is we treat symptoms. Like over 50% of our patients are symptomatic in some way and need emergent treatment. So anybody that comes in bleeding, we're very good at controlling bleeding. Say if they're coughing up blood because of a large lung mass, they're bleeding from their pelvis because of a large cervical mass. We're very good at getting to places where surgeons and medical oncologists can't go. So the brain. It's very, if you have multiple brain mets, a surgeon is not going to go in there and take every single one out. The blood-brain barrier prevents chemotherapy from getting in. Radiation can go and fight that cancer in the brain. Adjuvant or consolidative? So that's pretty much breast cancer. 
So the definitive, the curing treatment is surgery for, for breast cancer. We come in and because the patient gets to keep their breast, we have to make sure that we kind of give them an insurance policy that there's not microscopic disease left behind. So we treat the rest of the breast and therefore that allows them to keep the breast instead of getting it all removed. Neoadjuvant. So this is when we give the radiation instead of after the surgery, before the surgery or before the definitive treatment, the curative treatment. We do this mostly for when the surgeon is worried about having microscopic disease left behind or if we need to shrink the tumor so that not as much or not as big of a surgery needs to get done. And then definitive, which means that we're actually the ones curing the cancer. And we usually do that in combination with chemotherapy. So organ preservation, somebody that wants to keep their voice box, someone that wants to keep the ability to swallow if they have a big base of tongue tumor. Having that base of tongue removed means you can't swallow, you can't talk. We'll treat them with radiation and chemo. Anal cancer. You get rid of your little muscle that allows you to keep the poop in. If you don't have that anymore, you leak. So we try and preserve that ability. So I got to give a shout out to a couple of people that are here that helped me do my job. So I come up with the treatment plan and then, and I do the consent, go over the side effects and everything like that. And then I have therapists, therapists that help me do the CT scan. We do a CT scan pretty much on every patient to plan where we want the radiation to go. So we use a 3D image and I, I literally draw like, okay, here is my target, right? This is where the cancer is. This is where the possible microscopic spread of the cancer is. This is where the margin of error should be in case they don't set up the same way exactly every day. And then this guy does the rest. He's called a dosimetrist. And what he does is he plans where the radiation comes in from to maximize the dose going to my targets and away from all the normal structures. And then this guy called a medical physicist, make sure that I don't kill the patient. So he, way to go Kyle, way to go. <laughs> he makes sure the machine is working properly, it's delivering the dose that I want, it's gonna shape the dose in the proper way. These are just an amazing team effort to get a patient treated. And so then what does the future hold? Honestly, we're always trying to make the burden less on the patient, right? So in the olden days, we would have to treat prostate cancer over nine weeks. So that means the patient is coming in every day, Monday through Friday, for about 20 minutes a day for two months. We would treat breast cancer patients over six weeks. Now we've cut that down to a prostate cancer patient can come in for four days, five days, 20 days, 28 days. Like there's so many options out there. A breast cancer patient can come in for five days, 
10 days, 16 days, 15 days, like anything you want. And then the other big thing that we're trying to do is make it so that we can really localize where the tumor is. Because the better that we can localize the tumor, the smaller my margin of error has to be, the less normal tissue I'm treating, the less side effects somebody has. That's it. Please. Please. So the question was, how often are we using, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out the term brachytherapy, like internal radiation, uh, versus the external radiation. So the internal radiation, we use sources that are radioactive. So we can thank the Curies for that, right? That is, the majority of what we use that for today is GYN cases. So anyone that has an intact cervix, we treat the whole pelvis over five weeks. And then I should have added pictures of this, and I'm sorry I didn't. But we, <laughs> we basically have, well, it's a tandem that goes in through the cervix, and then two ovoid-shaped things that go into the fornices, right? Like, oh, are you going to draw it for me? <laughs> Um, and the source goes basically into the tip to treat the cervix because it's going through the cervix. Just the tip, just the tip. <laughs> you said it, man, you said it. <laughs> and then through the ovoids as well to treat the outside of the cervix. So we use that a lot. Someone that has had their uterus removed, we can do vaginal cuff brachytherapy, so Okay, right. Cervix, oh, I'm sorry, uterus, cervix, vagina, take that part out, you're just left with a blind pouch. Okay? So, high chance of recurrence in this area, put a radioactive source up against that vaginal cuff and treat that to reduce the chance of any microscopic disease coming back there. We. No, you're, no, that's a great question. And it's, it's a mixed bag of chips right there. So it comes with different, um, different side effects. So you, when we treat the pelvis, right, we're worried about adhesions to the bowel and causing a small bowel obstruction, right? You treat the vaginal cuff, you're going to narrow the vagina, and that can be pretty painful, right? Um, we also do that for prostate cancer, where you put the little radioactive seeds in the prostate, but the urethra, right, this is going to be pretty gross, right, the pee coming from the bladder out the penis flows right through the prostate. And so you could shut that sucker down if you get too much dose to that. I don't, we've never done that, obviously, obviously. <laughs> I've only heard stories about this, but, uh, but yeah, no, it can definitely happen. Great question. Sir. What prevents you from increasing the intensity even more to just wipe it out in a matter of a day? 
<laughs> so there's another picture that I should have included, which is basically, this is in our radiobiology. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, so the question was, what keeps us from just treating with one fraction, just like doing a high power one-time dose? So there's a, there's a picture in our uh, radiobiology book of a goat with a large scrotum, okay? And you aim a giant beam to that scrotum. That scrotum's gonna fall off, all right? That radiation is gonna kill that skin, all right? Um, it's, it's because, like, do you guys ever see Chernobyl? Did you watch that yeah. series? So the guys that walk in to where the core is, where that big blue light is coming out, and they're like, oh, what's that? And they like started throwing up and then were dead in five minutes. It's because when you have that much exposure to that high of a dose, you're looking at, we treat the highest, the highest we really go is about 80 gray, and you can treat prostate cancer to about 80 gray, but you're doing that over, once again, nine weeks, all right? These guys were getting about 150 gray in 50 seconds. Like, there's no way your body can handle that. All that DNA damage, all it, your cells are just gonna, just gonna die. So that, that's why. We, it's to prevent the side effects. We could do it, but the side effects are gonna be really horrible. But the body does recover. The, depending on the dose. Um, so there's basically when you have one gray, so we basically treat about two gray a day, all right? Doing, gray is our unit of radiation. Um, when you treat with two gray, if you treat it to a small area, you're gonna recover, right? You treat it to your whole body, you're gonna get a hemodynamic, like a basically bone marrow suppression. And then in four weeks, you're gonna be immunosuppressed, you're gonna go outside, you're gonna catch an infection, your body's not gonna have the fighting cells to fight it, and you're gonna die, right? You go up higher, you go to about six to eight gray to the whole body, you get GI dysfunction, you dehydrate, um, because you're just sloughing off the, your GI system, and the GI system is what absorbs water, so you become dehydrated, plus you have all that bone marrow suppression, so that's like a horrible death. And then you go to 10 gray to the whole body, you get a neurologic death. Those are the guys that they come into the ER and they're just having seizures and they're not gonna survive. So you can recover, but it depends on the dose that you receive. Sure. So, you guys working with radiation all the time, every day, all the patients, how do you, how radioactive are you guys? So I have, a, I have a lead shield on underneath to prevent the glow from coming out. Um, no, no. We, we are very, very safe. So they're, they're concrete and lead in our vaults, or just concrete, both. Um, so the therapists, the, the dosimetrists are in like a black hole in the corner, so they're, they're totally fine. The therapists are outside the treatment machine. So that big linear accelerator, the only time radiation is released during that is when we 
when they press the button and have the radiation come out. And there are big concrete, like, how thick? About a foot, two feet, couple feet, couple feet thick concrete, and maybe even a lead, um, lead lining in the wall to prevent any of that radiation from escaping from that room. So we don't go in there. And once the, once the patient comes out, they're not radioactive either. With brachytherapy, if we keep the source in, they would be radioactive, but we, we barely do that anymore. So yeah, we're not radioactive at all. What else? All right, thanks guys. All right, thank you so much. All of my fellow nerds, we have now come to the end, unfortunately, of another successful nerd night. Um, the next nerd night uh, it is Wednesday, October 20th. If you can't remember that, just remember the third Wednesday of every month. So beer, nerds, trivia, fun times, invite your friends, Invite your family, a uh, family-friendly event. And uh, if you have any presenting ideas, please go ahead, contact us. Let us know, nerdnightcos at gmail.com. Again, you can, follow, you can find us also on uh, Facebook, Instagram, all of it, nerdnightcos. Um, and we also, Flip and I, we host another community building event similar to, to Nerd Night, but a little bit different. You're not really learning things, uh, topics, you're learning about people. You're learning about um, your fellow Colorado Springs uh, people. So here we have memoirs, true stories, unfiltered. It is at 3 East Comedy Club on the last Monday of the month. So this, we, this month is gonna be what day? The 27th? 27th, yes, September 27th, 6.30, doors open, 7 p.m., uh, stories start. So that is our other events that we promote, and that is it. <laughs>